Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello, and welcome to the Federal Society's webinar call. Today, March 1st, 2023, we host a post-oral argument courthouse steps on two cases, the United States Department of Education versus Brown and Biden versus Nebraska, which we argued just yesterday before the court. My name is Kayla Kleist, and I'm an assistant director of practice groups here at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the expert on today's call, as the Federal Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. In the interest of time, we'll keep my introduction of our speaker brief, but if you'd like to know more about him, you can access his impressive bio at bedsoc.org. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Mark Chenoweth, who is the President and Senior Counsel at the New Civil Liberties Alliance. Throughout his career, Mr. Chenoweth has observed the administrative state from positions across the federal government and in the private sector. Regarding his time in government, Mr. Chenoweth served as the first Chief of Staff to Congressman Mike Pompeo, as Legal Counsel to Commissioner Ann Northup at the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, as an Attorney Advisor at the Office of Legal Policy at the U.S. Department of Justice, and as a Law Clerk for the Honorable Danny Boggs at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. In the private sector, Ms. Chenoweth has worked in several different roles as well. He began his legal career in D.C. as a regulatory associate at Wilmer Cutler and Pickering. He then returned to his home state of Kansas to serve as in-house counsel for Coke Industries. And most recently, prior to coming to work at the NCLA, he spent over four years as general counsel to the Washington Legal Foundation. And I'll leave it there. Uh, one last note throughout the panel, if you have any questions, please submit them via the question and answer feature, which you can find generally at the bottom of your Zoom screen, so that we'll have access to them when we get to that portion of today's webinar. With that, thank you all for being with us today. Mr. Chenoweth, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, uh, Kayla. And I just wanted to to say that the, I'm going to start with the Biden v. Nebraska argument. And this was a, a fairly high quality argument with many interesting angles explored. So we're not going to be able to cover everything uh, in the hour uh, that we have here, especially if we want to leave time for, for Q&A, which I do. Uh, but I do encourage you to read the transcript if you didn't already listen uh, to the oral argument. Uh, Solicitor General Preliger tries to lay out a simple case in defense of the administration's loan forgiveness program. Uh, she said that secretaries of education from the Trump and Biden administrations had already invoked the HEROES Act to suspend payment of principal and interest during the pandemic. So this is just a, a further extension of what she termed that unchallenged authority. Uh, she says student loan borrowers will be worse off without this relief because ending forbearance without it will cause defaults and delinquencies greater than what occurred pre-pandemic. And so Secretary Cardona crafted debt relief to ensure borrowers would not be worse off. Uh, so two quick things about that. First, the idea that this is unchallenged authority isn't true, even in the context of this case, uh, the new Civil Liberties Alliance in our amicus brief to the court uh, actually challenged the forbearance authority and said that it was unlawful uh, as well. So it's not true that that's uh, unchallenged. Uh, and then the idea that she said that um, uh, that that they're essentially going to forgive this debt to avoid defaults, uh, that seems a little like a funny concept to me. That's essentially saying, well, the cure to shoplifting is giving everything on the shelves away. Uh, it's it's a it's a very odd sort of way to think about how to to stop default. In any event, the second point that she makes is that the states lack standing to challenge uh, the relief. There's an entity in the state of Missouri called Mohila uh, that uh, is set up as a as a separate uh, corporate entity in charge of, of the loan disbursement in, in Missouri. Uh, she said it's a separate legal person and the state's claims about tax revenues or revenues coming from Mohila are self-inflicted and indirect and don't give the state a standing uh, in this case. 
Her third point is that the best reading of the plain text expressly authorizes the secretary under the HEROES Act to quote unquote waive or modify quote any Title IV provision uh, in an emergency situation. And, and no one in this oral argument at least uh, took issue with whether or not the emergency uh, trigger had been had been pulled here. Uh, Justice Gorsuch did ask you know, what authorities did the president sort of invoke and did he ever invoke the HEROES Act as part of that? Uh, uh, Preliger's answer to that was, well, this works in the opposite direction that once an emergency exists, then the HEROES Act says that you can invoke the HEROES Act. Uh, don't know that that's going to surface uh, again, but uh, that might have been an Easter egg that uh, Justice Gorsuch was dropping. I don't think so, but we'll, we'll find out. Loan for, uh, what Preliger said is that loan forgiveness is a usual form of debt relief, and so that the secretary was acting in the heartland of his statutory authority and consistent with the HEROES Act's purpose in forgiving uh, the debt. And lastly, she said that applying the major questions doctrine to override the clear text here would put the judiciary in the position of overriding the will of Congress in order to deny uh, student borrowers critical uh, relief. Well, let's hold off on the issue of standing for, for just a minute. We could spend the whole hour talking about that. It came up a lot in both cases. But let's jump instead right into the court's skepticism of the government's argument on the merits of Preliger's uh, other three points. So first, uh, as I say, Solicitor General Preliger got less pushback than she should have on what I think is a misleading claim that secretaries of education of both parties have invoked the HEROES Act uh, to suspend principal and interest payments. It fell to Solicitor General Campbell of Nebraska to point out that, in fact, Congress had authorized six months of suspended interest and principal payment in the CARES Act. And it's true that Secretary DeVos had for a few days before the CARES Act was passed, uh, talked about suspension, but before there was ever any even opportunity to challenge that, Congress stepped in and, and essentially uh, uh, made the decision for the secretary and, and but did put a six month uh, cap uh, on that. At the end of that six month period, uh, Secretary DeVos did extend that uh, once uh, into December and then another time in December. And it wasn't until, I believe it wasn't until December of 2020 uh, that the HEROES Act uh, was invoked. So the idea that the HEROES Act has been in play from the beginning isn't really true. It was the CARES Act that was initially responsible for uh, the suspension of principal and, and interest payments. And that was a statute of Congress. This case thus bears a striking similarity to the Alabama Realtors case, which also dealt with something Congress did for several months. Uh, in that case, an eviction moratorium on federally subsidized housing that the administration then tried to extend for many months and expand beyond subsidized housing. And we saw what happened there when it reached uh, the Supreme Court. The court eventually uh, got fed up with that. And I strongly suspect it won't put up with Secretary of Education's uh, extension and expansion of the CARES Act in this dimension uh, either, uh, but, uh, but we'll find out. In any event, Preliger also claimed that no one, uh, uh, well, as I say, she said no one has challenged uh, the use of the HEROES Act, and that may be true that no lawsuits have been filed uh, on that, but the issue was joined in the amicus, uh, in the amicus briefs. Uh, here. And what Solicitor Jan General Campbell pointed out is that the HEROES Act has never before been used to forgive a single loan. And Justice Thomas noted that loan cancellation or forgiveness is different than mere suspension uh, of payment. And that brings us to arguments uh, and 
Prelager's arguments about uh, the text. Justice Thomas asked and, and pointed out that Congress uses express language regarding cancellation elsewhere, uh, but not in the HEROES Act. And so he seems to be suggesting that a, that a waiver or modification of provisions might not extend to a complete cancellation of debt. But Preliger says quite unabashedly that what the secretary did was to waive any provisions that didn't apply and modify others by adding provisions that he wanted. So she calls it mapping the verbs. And of course, what she's talking about is wholesale rewriting of the statute. It would be like, like taking the sentence, Neil Armstrong was the first man to walk on the moon, waving everything but the moon, and then modifying the sentence to add green cheese, and then producing the sentence, the moon is made of green cheese, and saying that that's merely a modified version of the original sentence about Neil Armstrong being the first man to walk on the moon. The, the resulting sentence is unrecognizable from the first. It's, it seems to be far beyond a waiver uh, or a modification. But Preliger is very insistent that the, that the text of the statute is quite broad, that the secretary can waive or modify any provision so that the lack of mention of cancellation isn't meaningful uh, to her, especially where no other forms of relief are mentioned either. So it's not as though four or five forms are mentioned and cancellation isn't mentioned, no forms of relief uh, are mentioned. So she would have Congress uh, handing the secretary of education the keys to the kingdom in terms of forms of relief that would be uh, allowed. Chief Justice Roberts, uh, interestingly, picks up on this, on this problem and brings in Justice Scalia's notion from the MCI case that modification has to be modest, not a wholesale rewriting. And he notes we're talking about a half a trillion dollars a year and something that impacts 43 million Americans. Preliger's short answer to that is that waiver modify is broader than just modify. And her limiting principle appears to be that the subject matter of loans is generally within the Secretary of Education's domain, so that he's apparently entitled to rewrite the law however he pleases, so long as there is an emergency, and so long as he's still dealing with student loans. Uh, I don't know that the court's appetite for such statutory adventurism will be as robust. Uh, the chief talks, uh, or the chief notes that the law speaks of waiving provisions, not waiving loan balances. And when it, it came to be uh, Solicitor General Campbell's turn to get up to speak, he made the point, which I think is interesting, that really they weren't even waiving these provisions because the provisions still apply. If you want to continue to operate under the provisions that existed before, you can still do that. So the, the provisions haven't been waived. Essentially what happened is certain provisions were added and other provisions were excluded and a whole new program was set up almost like sort of picking words out of a book and sort of just, uh, I think red penciling was the term that Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett used to describe uh, what the secretary uh, did here. And it, it, has a, it has a lot of a line item veto feel to it. And that's why uh, the point Solicitor General Campbell made is, look, this has a Clinton v. New York problem. That was the line item veto case. If, if the secretary is allowed to do this, then the secretary is essentially line item vetoing parts of the, you know, of the HEROES Act, and, it, and that's not allowed. Even if Congress tried to give the secretary that power, we know from the line item veto case that that doesn't matter, that it's still unconstitutional. So uh, I don't know that, uh, that that much of a rewrite is something the court is going to uh, accept, and I'm not sure what they would uh, how they would handle the Clinton v. New York precedent if they had to, uh, if they decided that this rewrite was okay. 
Prelinger uh, boldly claims that Congress could not have been surprised one bit that a future uh, Secretary of Education would take the HEROES Act and forgive half a trillion dollars in debt. Uh, she says discharge is what it takes to make sure borrowers don't default. Again, it's the stop, stop, uh, uh, stop shoplifting by giving away the store uh, sort of logic here. Um, and, and, and look, that might work in an individual case like Jean Valjean and the, and the silver candlesticks from Les Miserables. Uh, but the idea that Congress authorized wholesale canceling of debt to avoid default is a bit rich. And the point of avoiding default is to maximize repayment of debt to the government. Canceling debt does not maximize repayment when you're wiping it out uh, in the process. Nothing is ever repaid then. So the government is guaranteed a complete loss versus at least a chance of repayment. And, and I just don't think the court is going to buy the logic uh, that uh, Solicitor General Preligar is selling there. The chief seemed to think, uh, for one, that Congress could, e could be easily surprised by the idea that borrower relief would lead to total loan forgiveness. A prelator tries to take the case of forgiving a single soldier's debt and, and uses that to say, uh, and sort of spins out this hypothetical where a lot of bad things happen to a soldier on active duty and the secretary decides to forgive that soldier's debt. Uh, and then says, well, if, it's, if that's possible under the statute, then it's possible for 43 million people in this sort of wholesale uh, way. Justice Sotomayor then picked up on the chief's mention of a half trillion dollars and asked if this is uh, a major question uh, for these sort of economic impact reasons. And Preliger said it can't just be economic. And she offered some additional factors why she thinks that this case is not in major questions doctrine uh, territory. Uh, primarily, she said this is an administration of benefits, not a regulatory action that impinges on individual liberty. And several of the justices uh, came back at her uh, later in the argument on that on that point and, and tried to sort of suss out whether there was was uh, something. But the first swing came from Justice Alito, and he wanted to know if there's really a, a sort of doctrinal difference, or if there's if there's really something that would justify treating benefits differently uh, from regulatory uh, actions uh, here. And given that what we're really concerned about is the separation of powers, and that matters as much in the benefits context as it does in the regulatory action context. Uh, Preliger claimed that, that that actually cuts in the government's favor because when you think about separation of powers, the court is the one that would be overriding Congress's intent uh, here. And I mean, kudos to her, I suppose, for sticking to her guns, but I think she's missing the the thrust of Alito's argument. He pressed on whether uh, Congress would need to be explicit before authorizing trillions of spending. And Preligar clings to the notion that the statute is clear, even though it's breathtaking in scope. And she also returns to the to her point about forbearance policy and no one complaining about uh, forbearance policy. At that point, there's a long sidetrack on standing. We'll come back to that. And then Chief Justice Roberts is the one that brings the argument back to the major questions doctrine. So if this is obviously how the, the, the lens through which he is looking at this case, having already mentioned it twice at this point. And he said that the separation of powers reminds him of the Dreamers case where the Trump administration tried to unilaterally cancel uh, that immigration program. And Preligar doubled down then on the idea that the court would be thwarting the plain language and the will of Congress. But the chief persisted and noted that a factor for the major questions doctrine is that if Congress uh, would be expected to act on this. If this is something that has Congress's attention and it isn't acting, then that's then that's meaningful. In other words, if Congress can't get something done and the bureaucracy then kind of comes in and tries to do it without going through 
uh, bicameralism and presentment, then that's a problem. And what uh, what Preliger said is that there's legislative inaction on both sides of this question. So there are also legislative actions to uh, to try to to reduce the scope of the Heroes Act that those also failed, and that in the American Rescue Plan Act there was a uh, there was a provision that would not treat any sort of loan forgiveness uh, as taxable. And so she said that was Congress essentially blessing programs uh, like this. Justice Thomas uh, then asked her about the appropriations clause. And Preliger said that, uh, that, that it's not implicated here because no funds are drawn from the Treasury, and that alone puts it outside of appropriations clause analysis. Now, she did not explain how keeping money from coming into the Treasury is not just the flip side of sending money out from the treasury. Because if you're forgiving debt, you are keeping the money from coming into the treasury that otherwise would be coming into the treasury under the laws that Congress uh, had passed. Uh, but Preliger once again invoked the forbearance, noted the $150 billion cost of forbearance, the ongoing $5 billion a month cost of the program, uh, and said that, uh, that if that's okay, then what the administration is doing with forgiving loans uh, is okay too. Uh, Thomas offered that perhaps forbearance fits more comfortably into wave or modify language because the debt isn't going away, it's just being pro uh, postponed. Um, but Preliger said it's all of a piece because they're, they're, they're both costing the government money. So even though forgiveness costs half a trillion instead of 150 billion, uh, that, you know, that's not that far off. Justice Kagan, then raised a few uh, statutory arguments about whether the relief was was necessary or whether it made borrowers uh, better off. Uh, but she suggested that these aren't really statutory interpretation arguments about how to look at the HEROES Act, that rather uh, these are questions having to do with whether or not the Secretary of Education made the right findings or justifications uh, before acting here. In other words, uh, she said these are more, these go more toward the question of whether the Secretary's line drawing was arbitrary and capricious. And Preliger readily agreed that these are arbitrary and capricious uh, considerations. As she says, we're in a world where the statute tolerates overbreadth and allows class-wide relief. Uh, just put a pin in that, whether, whether that's true or not, I think is, is debatable. But uh, she said that in that world, the question is justification of the line drawing that took place. And all of the Secretary's noting of the financial impacts of the pandemic are enough to justify the lines he drew for arbitrary and capricious purposes. Now, interestingly, in the, in the second case, in the Brown case, uh, she comes back to this arbitrary and capricious point and essentially tells the court, look, if we're going to lose, we wanna lose on these arbitrary and capricious grounds. And that makes sense because of course, from their perspective, if they lose on arbitrary and capricious grounds, then in theory, at least, the Secretary of Education could come back, make additional findings, better findings, maybe tailor the program a little more, draw the lines at a different place, and then uh, try to do the program again under the HEROES Act. Whereas if they lose under maybe a more of a major questions doctrine approach that says that there isn't statutory authority to do this under HEROES Act, then they wouldn't be able to go again under the HEROES Act. They'd have to do it under other statutory authority if such statutory authority exists, or they'd have to go back to Congress, perish the thought that they would get Congress involved here uh, on, uh, on uh, doing something that costs half a trillion dollars. But that would be uh, where they would where they would be. Um, Justice Gorsuch at this point followed up uh, with a, a question about the applicability of of State Farm, 
uh, as to whether the secretary adequately considered costs to third parties of the program, for example, the unfairness to people uh, who paid their loans. And he suggested that if Congress were doing this, Congress would take a look at that. But Preliger admits that, that none of those considerations are in there, but she says that Congress already made the judgment about who would get student loan benefits when it passed the HEROES Act, and so that the secretary doesn't need to gainsay that in uh, doing his line drawing. Justice Kavanaugh jumps in at this point. He seems to agree with the Chief Justice and Justice Thomas that Congress could have said cancellation here, but didn't. And he asks that, you know, aren't we just dealing with another old statute here with general language and a massive new program being created years after the fact? And so that this smacks of Brown and Williamson and UARG and the whole line of major questions doctrine uh, cases. And he asked Preligar why this doesn't fit that line. And Preligar offered that the new program here is consistent with the purpose of the HEROES Act. Uh, she said Congress said all provisions could be waived or modified, and the secretary was acting within his subject matter lane. He's dealing with student loans, the core of his expertise. Kavanaugh said, but there are still winners and losers in the benefits context. And so he wondered why Congress shouldn't, why express authorization from Congress uh, shouldn't be needed. And Preligar claims it's hard to see what Congress could have done differently uh, back in, in 2003. Kavanaugh ended with a sort of big picture question about the court's finest hours being, uh, being when they've pushed back on executive assertions uh, of emergency authority. I think he had the steel seizures case in mind, for example, but he also mentioned some of the post 9-11 cases, uh, which is interesting since he was in the White House uh, in, during those years. But, uh, but Preliger said that there is less reason uh, to be worried in the benefits context. And, and Justice Kagan also said that we worry about the separation of powers uh, if the executive is acting without authority that Congress has given it. But as long as Congress has given the authority over, then we don't worry about executive power. Well, that's not the Constitution that I read. So I, I, I found that perplexing that Justice Kagan put that out there. I thought the point of separation of powers was that you can't have legislative power in the executive branch because those powers aren't supposed to mix. They're not supposed to be under the control of one branch uh, of, uh, of Congress. And when they are under control of one branch of Congress, bad things happen. Uh, to liberty, uh, as we've uh, as we have seen in this case. In any event, uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett then asked Preliger about the red penciling done uh, by the secretary. We talked about this a little bit uh, earlier, and Preliger said that the statute specifically directs the secretary to publish the terms and conditions that are going to apply in lieu of the waived and modified provisions. And so, essentially, he wasn't doing anything wrong uh, by spelling these. Uh, things out. A query whether there's a non-delegation problem here wasn't really talked about uh, uh, at all at the oral argument. The, the Clinton v. New York question uh, did come up, so maybe that will feature in. Solicitor Campbell's uh, argument to the court was, uh, was quite direct when it came to be his turn. He said, the Secretary of Education is bypassing Congress, which tried and failed to pass relief uh, for student loan debt several times that no statute authorizes the half trillion dollar write-off, that Missouri has standing, and that this is a major questions doctrine case given the amount at stake, and that this uh, statute has never been used this way before, even to, get, even to forgive one soldier's uh, debt. So the statute allows waiving and modifying, not wholesale rewriting uh, of the statute. Uh, the questions for the first chunk of the argument to, uh, to Solicitor General Campbell focused heavily 
on standing uh, standing questions. And the uh, you know, Justice Thomas started things off saying, "Hey, I, you know, you really ought to talk about Mohila here. You really ought to talk about uh, the, the the standing questions." And he uh, was really faced a, a barrage of questions. I think it's fair to say about standing, about Mohila, and the, the interesting sort of quirk here is that we're talking about the Solicitor General of Nebraska, of course, who's having to speak to a Missouri entity. And I assume that there are sort of behind the scenes reasons for uh, who had been on the case the longest and was the most up to speed on the various arguments uh, and, and so forth. And I think Solicitor General Campbell did a, did a fine job, uh, but I would just note that peculiarity. Ordinarily, you wouldn't have another state Solicitor General defending uh, a different state's uh, program. So it was interesting to hear that. The, I think that the, the most direct version of standing uh, that, that, the, uh, that the Solicitor General said is, is look, 77% of Mohila's revenue comes from servicing direct loans. About half of all loans will be discharged under the Secretary of Education's program. That will cut Mohila's operating revenue from direct loans in half. Mohila gives $63 million or has given something like $63 million uh, to a state scholarship fund. If, if Mohila's revenue is cut in half, it's not going to keep be able to keep giving money at the same rate it's given before, sort of QED. Uh, Justice Jackson asked if there are offsetting fees um, and, and whether he needed to show that the offsetting fees weren't enough uh, to, to make up for that. Uh, Campbell said it's hard to think that there'd be enough to make up for the loss of half of Mohila's uh, revenue. Um, Justice Kagan said that Mohila can sue and be sued, isn't here. SCOTUS usually doesn't allow standing in the shoes of another by third parties. But Campbell said the government is different. And he pointed to two federal cases, Sherry Cotton Mills and Erickson, where the federal government has been allowed to assert interests of federally created uh, corporations. And he tried to say that the states are just asking for the same sort of latitude uh, here that the federal government uh, enjoyed in those uh, in those cases. Uh, Campbell also said that Missouri has an interest uh, in Mohila. It created it in order to provide financial aid. Uh, and so that uh, if those payments aren't made, then the students in Missouri will, will be harmed by that. When, when pressed by uh, Justice Barrett, he was also quick to say that, look, there's just a plain old argument that the state can speak directly for Mohila, that this is an instrumentality uh, of sorts and and that that's uh, and that that's enough. Um, I, I'll pause here to say that NCLA's amicus, amicus brief did focus on the standing question uh, as well up front. Uh, but what we said is that we think that that the states have standing under the Mohila theory that they're asserting. But we also think that the states employ people who benefit from the public service loan forgiveness program. That program is severely undercut by the Secretary of Education's waiver and modifications that went into creating this new program. This is the theory of standing that we are using on behalf of the Cato Institute in a se separate case against the Biden administration's loan forgiveness program that we filed in the District of Kansas. Um, and, but we think it applies to the states as well because the states also have uh, employees who are eligible for and benefit from the public service loan forgiveness uh, program. That didn't come up at, at oral argument, but if for any reason the justices don't buy the Mohila argument that Secretary or that uh, Solicitor General Campbell uh, spelled out for them, 
I just want to reiterate that there is an additional theory of standing in front of the court from uh, NCLA's uh, amicus brief. Now, coming back away now from the standing argument, um, Justice Gorsuch, I think, was the first to get away from standing and ask Campbell to address whether the major questions doctrine applies and whether the Congress's appropriations clause authority uh, is implicated. Campbell said there's even more reason for the major questions doctrine to apply because the Secretary of Education is invading a quintessential legislative function by writing off a debt. And so that the separation of powers is deeply implicated uh, in that action. Justice Sotomayor said, no one's disputing that the secretary has forbearance power. I would invite Justice Sotomayor to read NCLA's amicus brief. We are disputing that. Again, NCLA, uh, uh, but, but, sorry, but she said that the amount of money can't be the issue uh, because forbearance is $5 billion a month already. And so uh, the question is Congress's intent. Campbell replied that the HEROES Act doesn't give rewrite powers. Kagan jumped in to say, yes, it did says the secretary can add terms and conditions to be applied. She says the statute's very clear. Uh, so again, this is a just the statutory issue being joined on how far does waive or modify go? Does it allow you to go all the way to rewriting the statute in a way that essentially creates new programs with a sort of picking and choosing various uh, words to assemble a new a new program out of, or maybe not words, but partial provisions. Uh, and then, as I said before, Campbell made the interesting point that the secretary is not waiving provisions at all because they're still in effect for folks who want to use them. Um, and he said that the in lieu of language has to be read in a sense of modification, not authorizing a wholesale uh, rewrite. Kagan, at this point, puts forward a, a sort of an earthquake hypothetical and asks whether the secretary could modify the program to include not just uh, the borrower's loss of income, which the statute might cover, but say, extend that to the primary earner in the borrower's household. And Campbell said, that sounds like a new program. And Kagan resists that. Uh, she says the statute's very broad. Uh, but Campbell said that Congress preserved for itself the ability to discharge loans. Uh, Kagan asked where that is in the statute. Campbell said the CARES Act shows that Congress has a voice in an emergency. Uh, presumably, he was pointing to the temporary suspension of payments that Congress clearly authorized. Uh, in the CARES Act. Uh, and that's when Kagan said that we only worry about executive power when Congress hasn't uh, authorized it. Um, and, and, and Campbell then raises the Clinton v. Uh, City of New York uh, problem. Once again, Chief Justice Roberts comes back to the major questions doctrine case, which I think tells you this is on his mind. This is now the third time Chief Justice Roberts has come back to, to, to ask about major questions doctrine cases and ask whether those uh, other statutes would uh, similarly had broad language in them that might literally cover the authority that was exercised by the government officials there. And Campbell agreed. He said, look, this fits very well within those cases. I talked earlier about, uh, about uh, Alabama realtors uh, and uh, that both of them are CARES Act extension sort of kinds of, kinds of cases. Sotomayor said Alabama realtors was different because an eviction moratorium had never occurred before. But neither has this kind of massive loan forgiveness. So I'm not exactly sure what she was getting at there. Uh, she claims this couldn't come as a surprise uh, because the Higher Education Act allows for loan forgiveness. But again, this wasn't done under the HEA. This was done under the HEROES Act. Uh, she claims that Campbell just wants to say that this rewrite is bigger than he would like, um, but that she said it's all semantics, that all of this is rewriting the statute. The question is just 
uh, whether Congress allowed it or not. And she says that Congress did. Uh, Campbell sticks to his guns and that wave or modify is just not broad enough to, to permit rewriting. He also points to, to grant overpayments as one named instance in the statute where the Secretary of Education could excuse returning funds to the government. And by naming one, Campbell says Congress implicitly excludes a wider scope uh, for that particular form of relief. Justice Gorsuch then asked about the OLC opinion and its limits, saying that the program could only put people back uh, in no worse position, not in a better position. And this program puts some borrowers in a much better position uh, than the status quo ante. Of course, Campbell agreed with that. Uh, actually, he said he disagreed with almost everything in the OLC opinion, but he agreed with that, which I thought was a, a funny line. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh said the argument uh, on modify is good, but that wave is a very broad term. But Campbell reiterated that nothing's really being waived here. The program still exists uh, and that what they're really doing is creating new programs and that this isn't in the Secretary of Education's wheelhouse because only Congress can create brand new loan discharge programs. So that this idea that this is out of the, the major questions doctrine uh, sort of territory because we're dealing with student loans and the Secretary of Education is dealing with student loans. Campbell said, no, 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 this is loan discharge and that's Congress's job. And so it is out of the lane of the Secretary of Education. Uh, I, I thought he made a good point uh, there. Uh, and, that, and that using the HEROES Act to forgive loans is unprecedented, which is another reason to think that the statutory text doesn't cover that since no one's done it for the, you know, the last 20 years. Uh, Justice Barrett then asked Campbell whether the loan repayment pause is okay. Uh, that goes to the scope of waive or modify, she says. And Campbell said that at some point, an extension goes beyond a modification and the connection to the national emergency becomes too tenuous. Also, he noted that a pause maintains the status quo with regard to debt, uh, but the cancellation puts people in a better position. Uh, he also said a pause keeps indebtedness from rising versus erasing uh, that indebtedness. And finally, that when lockdowns were still going on, there was a pretty strong connection uh, between the emergency and the forbearance uh, on the loans. Uh, but however you look at it, this kind of wholesale rewriting of the law in the executive branch cannot possibly be okay. I would think even under the, the current lax standards for divesting legislative power under the non-delegation doctrine. Um, but the court didn't talk about this in terms of non-delegation. It's gotten, uh, some might say, sidetracked into its newest creation, the major questions doctrine which uh, while useful in some sense uh, is getting us even further away from the text of the constitution than the non-delegation doctrine did. So ideally the court would return to first principles here and recognize that Congress cannot delegate wholesale rewriting of statutes to the secretary of education, even uh, in an emergency. Um, one might even protest that there's no such thing in American law as executive suspending of the law. That kind of royal prerogative is anathema to the constitution. So to the extent the HEROES Act purports to delegate that power to the executive, we have a constitutional problem uh, there uh, as well. Uh, but, uh, but that's not, you know, those arguments weren't joined uh, in the oral argument. And so I, I think if I were to hazard a guess about what's going to happen, I would say that, uh, that the court is, is likely to find standing uh, for the states. Uh, the court creates fewer problems by finding standing for the states uh, over, given the state instrumentalities connection, then something that would allow any citizen to object. It's not a big leap at all from current law to say that Missouri has an interest in seeing that the $63 million in contributions from Ohila uh, to the state scholarship fund do not dry up anytime soon. 
I think it's also likely that the major questions doctrine rides again here, especially with the chief justice bringing it up as many times as he did. The amount of money at issue here is ginormous. Uh, the chief is obviously bothered by the secretary of education acting when Congress couldn't. Uh, and this is, so this is heartland MQD territory for, for the chief. And I don't think there will be much explicating of the doctrine because this is so much like the previous cases. The major difference uh, is that this statute is the Secretary of Education's to administer, uh, but I don't think that's going to make a difference. And I don't think that uh, that uh, that the doctrine will be said not to apply uh, in the benefits context. I, I also don't think that the Solicitor General will get her wish to lose if she must based on an arbitrary and capricious analysis. Uh, but the court may say something about borrowers not being in the same position as before, but in an appreciably better uh, position. I don't think the court will reach the appropriations clause question. It doesn't have to in order to decide this case. And it's already granted cert on the CFPB case where the same question is lurking. So I, I think it, and if I had to predict, I'd say it probably takes a pass on that. I think it'll just say that waiver modify is not broad enough to cover what happened uh, here. Uh, given the major questions, doctrine, dimensions of the case. And I suspect the chief justice might write the opinion and assign it to himself, but that's just uh, that's just sheer uh, speculation. Uh, let me just say a few words about the uh, Department of Education v. Brown uh, case. Uh, once again, the, the court there spent a, a, an inordinate amount of time on the standing question and trying to figure out you know, whether these uh, whether these plaintiffs uh, have standing and why these plaintiffs are trying to knock down the Secretary of Education's program in order to hopefully benefit from some other program. They called it a bank shot and wondered whether or not that is the kind of, uh, uh, of action that plaintiffs can ask for. And I think the court is a little suspicious as well. At least Justice Sotomayor seemed to think that maybe these plaintiffs weren't really interested in having the HEROES Act program shut down in order for another program to blossom. Maybe they would just be happy to have the HEROES Act shut down, program shut down full stop. And so you know, do we really have plaintiffs here that are uh, complaining about something uh, in, in a way that they can get the kind of relief that they want? Is it very speculative to say that if the uh, HEROES Act is shut down, that the administration would go forward with a new program. Now, uh, there, one aspect of this I haven't talked about yet is the complaint that the Brown plaintiffs are making is, look, this was done under the HEROES Act. It shouldn't have been done under the HEROES Act, but the reason it was done under the HEROES Act was because they didn't have to go through notice and comment rulemaking, and maybe they wanted to do it more quickly or what have you. And that by, by holding up the stop sign here, the court would force the Secretary of Education to go back maybe do it under the HEA or some other statutory authority where you would have to go through notice and comment rulemaking, and then these plaintiffs would be able to uh, participate in the notice and comment rulemaking process. So they're essentially saying that their rights, their procedural rights have been violated because the secretary went through door number one when he was only allowed to go through uh, door number two. It'll be interesting to see what the court makes of that uh, of that standing argument. Uh, I believe this was the first uh, argument at the Supreme Court for my, uh, for my friend, Michael Connolly. And uh, uh, was, was uh, you know, I, I thought, uh, did, a, did a very nice job for a first uh, presentation uh, at the Supreme Court. I'm not sure that 
uh, the, the, and, and the reason the court, I think, granted cert here was because uh, the plaintiffs won below and the Solicitor General uh, in the United States uh, wanted to defend the program in front of the Supreme Court. So I don't, you know, I, I really think that most of the argument, most of the uh, most of the things that are going to be adjoined here by uh, the Supreme Court, the various issues that they're going to, to, to really chew on are going to be ones that came up in the argument uh, in the Biden v. Nebraska uh, sort of first argument. I don't know that there's going to be as much uh, for the court uh, to chew on in the second argument. I think that's mostly going to be a question of standing. And if they decide that the plaintiffs don't have standing, then that may be the only ruling that they make. They may not they may not talk about uh, any of the other substance because they'll already have the opportunity to do that in the context of the Biden v. Nebraska case. Now, if they do find that the that these plaintiffs have standing, and if they were to find that the plaintiffs don't have standing, that the state that the state plaintiffs don't have standing in Biden v. Nebraska, and that the Brown plaintiffs do have standing uh, in in the second case, then the reverse would be true. Then I think a lot of the same issues uh, would come up, uh, but. One of the things that uh, has happened in, in the current sort of post-pandemic version of the Supreme Court is that after the normal time is allotted, the Chief Justice goes down and asks each justice if they have any more questions. One of the funny things that happened in argument here was that the Chief started to, to cut off uh, the, uh, the attorney for Brown before he had done that piece of it. And then he stopped himself and then went down the line and asked if anybody had any further questions. And no one did. And the chief was kind of like, see, <laughs> so I think that lack of questions uh, really is is what's leading me to say uh, that there's not as much for the court to chew on there as there is in the Biden v. Nebraska case. And with that, I think uh, maybe we'll, uh, Kayla, we can go ahead and open it up to uh, to questions. If people do have more to say about the Brown case, I'm happy to uh, to speak more about that, too. But I think we've we've certainly touched on on the various highlights here. Thank you. Thank you. I know two cases in an hour or less is a ton to cover and I really appreciate sort of that um, laying out of the facts and how oral argument went and sort of the, the major themes that were going on. Uh, eventually, I'd love to get to some broad level questions, but a detailed question based on a uh, something submitted by the Q&A feature um, that pairs with the question I had. Um, are the arguments in either case affected by the promise of the Biden administration to end the national uh, public health state of emergency in May of this year. We had a comment saying, hey, uh, there's there's conversations about the fact that the emergency seems to be ending. Um, and so how does that affect the either of these cases? Does it affect either of these cases? And what might the ramifications be for the arguments that were put forward? Well, one place that that came up was in the Brown case when uh, the, the idea was raised that, well, look, if if this program is shot down, then maybe maybe the secretary of education can't create another program because if the pandemic's over, then maybe he won't have the authority at that point uh, to create another program. There was uh, an alarm raised. I, I want to say it was Justice Barrett, but I don't remember for, for certain about uh, an argument that had taken place in front of the district court that she thought maybe the government was claiming, well, now that this pandemic has happened at any point, even 10 years in the future, uh, the administration can look back at the economic effects uh, from the pandemic and say, oh, look, we still haven't done enough. And here's a brand new program that that is still based on this pandemic authority. The, the Solicitor General disclaimed that authority. Uh, and I don't know whether that 
is consistent with how the government was arguing below or not. But but she said that there had been a misunderstanding by the court below. And so she represented to Justice Barrett that uh, that that's not the government's position. They don't think that they can do the program at any point down down the road. So that's one place where that comes up. Uh, do I think that there's a problem given that that the president said on 60 Minutes several months ago that the pandemic is over uh, and that was uh, right around the time that this program was was set up? Uh, I don't think it's a helpful fact uh, for the government, but I think if if they were otherwise on strong statutory ground and constitutional ground, I don't know that it would be an issue, but they're not. They're on terribly weak ground. Uh, and so I think that's really their bigger problem. Got it. Thank you. Question from the audience concerning standing. Uh, could you clarify why standing is not an issue in Alabama Association of Realtors, whereas in these two cases, a lack of standing could hurt the challenger's chances of succeeding? Uh, in the case of the court, what are the issues beyond this case with granting standing to the challengers? So the uh, Alabama Realtors case uh, was the eviction moratorium case that made it to uh, the Supreme Court. Um, I don't remember standing being an issue in that case. Uh, I guess the person's asking why wasn't it uh, an issue in that case? I, you know, I, we didn't represent Al the Alabama Association of Realtors, so I don't have a a real strong understanding of whether there are landlords that belong to that group, but that's my guess. So we represented uh, a, a national apartment association and so forth, which uh, was what um, were landlords included landlords. And so I'm, I'm guessing that that the Realtors Association was an association of that included landlords that that were being represented there. And so they would they would obviously have an interest in not having. Uh, in having their ability to evict people uh, uh, contravened by by the government. So I, I felt like standing wasn't an issue in those cases. As for why, it, you know, as for why it is an issue here, I think that, uh, well, I don't think it's an issue for the states. I think the states do have standing. And I think if the court were to say to the states, you don't have standing, the states could come right around with two or three other arguments, including the one NCLA provided and say, well, here's another reason we have standing. And here's another reason we have standing. And so it's a little bit, I think it would be a little bit uh, pointless for the court to say that the states don't have standing here. Cause I feel very strongly that the states could make the necessary showings if they haven't already uh, to assert that they have standing. So I just don't, I don't think the court is going to kick it on that basis, uh, but we'll see. Got it. Another question on standing uh, coming from a audience member. Uh, would the House have standing to challenge this executive action as usurping Congress's authority to decide whether to incur the costs of a blanket loan forgiveness? Yes. Give you an easy answer there. I think the House would. I think it's uh, somewhat surprising if, if the House hasn't already filed suit somewhere. One House of Congress does have the authority to file. Um, I think Speaker McCarthy should probably get busy on that. Efficient answer. Um, to the sort of opposite side of the standing question, uh, what, are the what are the possible consequences uh, for future challenges to executive action if either of these states or uh, probably more the individual challengers are granted standing in this case? Is that a, might that be a departure from precedent? And what sort of other challenges in the future could that open the door to? I think if the plaintiffs, uh, if the Brown plaintiffs here are granted standing, that would definitely open the door 
uh, to to wider sorts of challenges uh, in the future. I haven't given a lot of thought to exactly how wide open that would that would make the door, but uh, you know, I think that typically when you're dealing with a benefits program, you can't complain about getting left out of the benefit program. That's not usually that doesn't usually give you standing uh, to sue about someone else getting the benefits. Um, and so that would, what they've done here essentially is find a procedural way of still complaining about being left out of a benefits program. If that is allowed to happen, then I could imagine lots of other people similarly finding creative ways and hats off to the attorneys for, you know, for this creative approach. Um, but I suspect that the court will be afraid that it's opening a big can of worms if it does this. Whereas saying that a state can represent the interests of a, of a, uh, of an entity that was set up by the state, I, I think that that does not open the door very wide uh, at all. And we've seen the special solicitude that the court has had for state plaintiffs in the past. Uh, I'll be I'll be awfully surprised if they don't find standing here for the states. Got it. Thank you. Uh Audience question, uh, is there a distinction between the authority of the president and the authority of the secretary, or is they treated as one and the same in this case, or in these cases? Well, so they're slightly different. So the president has the authority to declare the emergency. The secretary of education couldn't unilaterally declare an emergency. So uh, Justice Gorsuch did get into that. That was the Easter egg bit I mentioned at the beginning. And, you know, is it possible that that the court would look at this and say, look, when the emergency was first announced by by President Trump, what was talked about was some of these quarantine kind of authorities and things under the under HHS. No one mentioned the Heroes Act, um, so you know maybe there maybe there's a misalignment here in terms of uh, of declaring that authority. But anyway, the Solicitor General's point was that once the emergency is declared, however it's declared, then that triggers the Secretary's power under the Heroes Act, and and he can proceed. That may be true. I think then the questions remains, what can he do? Can he completely rewrite the statute and come up with a new loan discharge program? I think the court's going to say no, uh, he can't do that. Uh, can he do forbearance and uh, or she and Secretary DeVos's case do forbearance of, of principal and, and interest payments? Well, maybe, maybe for a short period of time, maybe not, but certainly not indefinitely. Uh, and so I think that's another weakness of Prelegar's argument is because she's essentially saying, well, if you can do forbearance, then you can do this loan forgiveness. But no one's saying you can do forbearance forever and indefinitely. And that's essentially what she's asking for by allowing this loan discharge program to be uh, authorized or approved by the court. Okay. Uh, moving to the sort of a, a hypothetical, assuming that standing is granted, um, what are the implications of this case if the court finds in favor of either the states or the individual challengers? And you've talked about this a little bit, but does it matter whether the states or the individuals win? Uh, is there, are there practical ramifications depending on yeah. which one is granted standing and then um, sort of has the court side with them? So we already talked about uh, what the impact might be on standing. So I'll leave that aside. But is there a difference on the merits? No, I don't think so. I think that, that the court can reach, in fact, Justice Alito asked the government, if we find standing for either one of these plaintiffs in either one of these cases, we can reach the merits, right? And the government agreed, yep, that's right. You can, you can reach the merits. So uh, I think the, the bigger question will be, do they reach the merits and decide this on major questions, doctrine grounds? Do they reach the merits and say, look, 
waiver modify doesn't go this far? Do they reach the merits and say, oh, this is arbitrary and capricious, bad line drawing? Uh, there are different ways of reaching the merits that I think would, would have bigger or lesser impacts. Um, I think that what we're likely is to see, given the chief's repeated invocation of the major questions doctrine and the apparent willingness of Justice Kavanaugh and, and, and Gorsuch to go along with that, I think we're going to see another MQD decision. Got it. Well, granting that, I'll still ask the opposite question. Sure. Uh, what are the effects of this of these cases at the court grant standing and then rules in favor of the Biden administration? Um, is there a world where we could see options being open to what can be done when we're in a state of emergency? And are there dangers and benefits to the precedent that creates? I think there's, uh, I think there's massive danger. Uh, I, I, in fact, I, I'll go so far as to say, I don't think that the court would get five votes. If, if that's where they're going to come out on the merits, now standing and merits are supposed to be separate inquiries, but I would be shocked if they would find standing and then, and then say the, and then uphold the program. I think they'd be much more inclined to say there isn't standing and then wait for someone else to challenge the program who has standing. I don't think that they're going to uphold this program. If, if this is allowed, if, if the, if the secretary of education can spend half a trillion dollars, it wasn't so long ago that the whole budget was only a trillion dollars. Uh, if he can spend half a trillion on his own, then we've completely lost the power of the purse uh, from Congress. And if Congress no longer has the power of the purse, then uh, then the whole enterprise is down the tubes. I mean, I, I not not to be sort of a millennialist about it, but I, you know, I think I think that's all she wrote. I, I don't think you can have a functioning constitutional government in which the executive branch self funds. Okay, um, you've mentioned a couple pieces of argument for standing that either weren't raised in oral argument or um, were submitted by amicus briefs and just weren't, weren't addressed as they were talked about. Are there arguments as to the uh, validity of the loan forgiveness program uh, that you were that exist and you were surprised not to see come up in oral argument or uh, just could be have could have been brought in this case, these cases? Did you say arguments in favor or arguments against? I'll take both. <laughs> well, to be completely candid, I haven't spent a lot of time uh, educating myself about additional arguments in favor. I can say that the uh, in the Kansas case, we have the government's defense of the statute has been pretty much uh, in line with what they said at the uh, at the Supreme Court. So I don't know that there's a lot of new uh, you know, sort of new ground to break there. I think the, the issue that did come up at oral argument here, but that has been much more uh, uh, thoroughly explored elsewhere is the appropriations clause question. I do think that uh, that um, the appropriations clause does not allow this and that you could decide this solely on an appropriations clause sort of analysis. I don't think that this case is set up to do that, partly because of how often the major questions doctrine came up. Uh, but you could imagine a case coming along where much like I think is going to happen with the CFPB case, where they just said, look, you can't, you can't take this much appropriations power away from Congress. Article one gives that appropriations power. And when you say that money drawn from the treasury, you, you don't, you shouldn't be reading that so literally that debt forgiveness, keeping money coming into the treasury doesn't count, that that's, that that's, uh, uh, and, and you can look at this as a historical matter, uh, 
you know, my boss, Philip Hamburger, has looked at some of these questions. There, there are certain kinds of debt that an executive can forgive. So, for example, if you're trying to negotiate a, a loan uh, forgiveness situation with somebody, and they say, "Well, you know, I can't pay back the ten thousand I owe, but you know, if you can put me on this different plan, and I can pay back six or seven thousand over this period of time instead of ten over this period of time," there is there is good authority that the executive has the power to reach that sort of individualized, you know, kind of, of, of loan forgiveness, but doing something like this, where it's so widespread is different. I think the other thing that, that didn't really come up is Congress never appropriated funds uh, under the HEROES Act. So the idea that the HEROES Act did this, there was no CBO score for how much the HEROES Act would cost when the HEROES Act passed. So the idea that this is an appropriation statute, I think is, is flawed and there's there's more to explore there. Some of the Miki did explore that. Got it. Well, I will pose two last questions as we know running up in time. Uh, the first is these are two cases challenging the same program and offering, it seems, many of the same questions. Do you have standing and was this constitutional? Um, why have two cases? What were some of the differences, either in oral argument or as to the issues and points raised um, that make it arguably worth hearing both? Well, there's a circuit split, right? So uh, one of the cases essentially prevailed below and one of the cases uh, essentially didn't prevail below, although the Eighth Circuit had put a stay in place, um, but it had lost at the Eastern District of, uh, of Missouri. So uh, I think that you had uh, uh, different outcomes. I think you also had the government asking for uh, cert to be granted in uh, in the in the second case. So I think that's a big part of uh, of why both cases were granted when the when the government asks for cert because a federal program or statute has been shot down, it usually cert is usually granted. Got it. Um Question from the audience, if we can sneak it in. Is there any, was there any discussion in the briefs or oral argument as to what other hypothetical relief under the SG's view would have been okay? There was discussion about uh, what hypothetical relief would have been okay, but uh, the SG's view is that everything is hunky-dory the way it happened. And essentially it's, uh, you know, her view is that wave includes everything and modify includes everything under wave. Therefore, everything is okay uh, in terms uh, in terms of, of relief. Got it. And then last question, uh, do you, you mentioned that you think the court will grant standing in, uh, the state's case may grant standing. It's still a question in Brown, um, and that there will likely be a ruling against the Biden administration. Uh, do you have a perspective on what the issues will be, uh, and, that break out the various members of the court to say this, we're going to disagree on this, we agree on this, and this is sort of the um, argumentative stumbling blocks or div div dividers, excuse me, uh, that will sort of break out the court. Great question. I don't have time to address it. Uh, I, so I guess what I would say is I think that there will be a core of, uh, of justices who are willing to buy into the major questions doctrine argument and that the chief justice seems to want to propound that here. Uh, and I don't think they have to break much new ground in order to do that. And I don't think the chief likes to break much new ground, particularly when they're doing something as as uh, potentially controversial as striking down this uh, this government instance of government overreach, just because it's popular for the people who are beneficiaries of it. Um, 
so I so I suspect that he will try to cobble together uh, at least five votes for a major questions doctrine uh, analysis and result here. Maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe something else will will come up. There certainly are statutory arguments. If they thought they could get Justice Kagan to go along with, with something, maybe they'd be tempted to to you know to do something that would lead to a seven to two argument. Uh, but I don't I don't think they're going to get. I don't think it's going to be an arbitrary and capricious type decision. I'll be surprised if they if they decide on that ground. Got it. Well, thank you so much on behalf of myself and the Federal Society. Thank you, Mr. Chenoweth, uh, for the benefit of your valuable time and expertise today. We really appreciate you joining us. And thank you to our audience uh, for joining and participating. We welcome listener feedback at info at fed-soc.org. And as always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about other upcoming virtual events. With that, thank you all for being with us today. We're adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.